This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Hello and welcome. This is another episode of the Best Friends Podcast. My name is John Dunn, and this week we're going to be talking about some words and terms that we'd prefer be removed from the animal welfare lexicon. You know how every year the dictionaries put out their words of the year, then there are always the lists of banned terms we never want to hear again. Words like moist. Sorry. (laughs) Well, we thought of some for animal welfare, and we'd love to hear from you on this. What words or terms would you like to never hear again in animal welfare? Maybe things that are unintentionally harmful, things maybe we've always said. But as times change, as we learn more, maybe those terms, you know, they've become outdated. As you'll hear today, some can actually do more harm than good. Please email us yours, podcast at bestfriends.org. For those of you who use Spotify to listen to this podcast, there's a new feature that allows us to ask you a question that you can answer right in the app. So poke around and find that. Send in your nominations for words and terms for this list. We might just share them in an upcoming episode. If you don't use Spotify, and according to the analytics for the Best Friends podcast, that is the vast majority of you, like 90% of you don't use Spotify. That's okay. You can go old school. Just email us. Super easy, podcast at bestfriends.org. If you want some inspiration as you think about yours, check out this conversation I had with my guests this week from Best Friends, Regional Manager for the East Coast Region, John Graves, and Senior Director of Lifesaving Programs for the East Coast, McKenna Yarbrough. Before we go any further, John, I want to say congratulations to you, uh, because since you were last on the podcast, which was last summer, I think, you uh since become a new dad. So congrats, pal. How's dad life treating you? I got to say, you look incredibly well-rested, fresh as a daisy. Well, it is Monday, so, you know, I did have the weekend to recover. No, he's good. He's a, he's a really good, quiet baby for the most part. He's a really cool dude. We took him to the beach yesterday for the first time. He's four months today. It's definitely different, you know, a bit of a change up, considering it's usually just been a lot of animals and now it's a lot of animals and a baby. So you've got a lot on your plate, John. I know you do, McKenna, so let's get into it. This is an episode I've wanted to do for a while. This idea of the things we say in animal welfare, things that maybe we've all said for a long time, but they're words, terms that might have unintended consequences. And this can apply to words we use just generally inside the industry with each other, inside baseball terms, and the things we say publicly as well to adopters, donors, elected officials, whoever. But as we learn more over time about animals, about people, about pet ownership, sometimes I think our language doesn't keep pace. So it's a question of making those connections. And once you know, you know. And you can do better, right? You can update the style guides, your organizational style guide, but you're also your own personal style guide, right? And, you know, some of the terms we'll talk about today are things that we've all said for years and years. I'm looking forward to hearing yours, but I'll, I'll get us started if that's okay and say that I would like to see this one used a lot less often, maybe never again. And that one is the term forever home. Forever home. You know, adoptions, despite how much we try, sometimes don't work out. And it's just not the right fit. And that's okay. A return should actually be the goal, right? Returns aren't bad. That allows you to find the best fit for both the pet and the person. I believe pet ownership, it's one of those things that should be as wonderful an experience as possible for everyone. And I've never understood why we would want anyone to share their lives with an animal when it's not working for either of them, right? So, you know, we can make every effort to make the best adoption connections, but we 
often don't know a lot about the adopter or the pet, you know, particularly places with very high intake, a large number of outcomes. And the last thing we want is for someone to not turn to us for help if they need it because they feel that they're failing us and the pet because they aren't meeting that goal we gave them of a forever home. So forever home, uh, agree or disagree, McKenna. Yeah, it's actually, it was a word that when I ran the Lynchburg Humane Society that I had a document that these are the words you're never allowed to use, especially on social media. And forever home was one of them. And it's even worse when they do forever home. But yeah, I think subconsciously what people don't realize, they think it's a fun and it's engaging with the community, but it also sends a secondary message that if you aren't able to keep your pet, that you are a less than. And I've always hated that term because returns happen. We're all, you know, we're in this industry for a reason and we should be a resource for owners who can no longer care for their pet or it wasn't a good match to begin with. I mean, we have these people coming in, adopting from us, wonderful human beings who spend, what, half an hour, an hour with with a pet and then take it home. And we all recognize, all of us recognize that a pet is different in a shelter environment than it is in a home environment. And we can't expect every situation to be a forever situation. So it, it is a term that I think should be removed from the from the dialogue in regards to how we refer to adopters. Well, and also it's it's not just like you're saying, McKenna, it's not just a, and from adoption perspective, it's from a rehoming perspective. It's from an animal that could have been in this home for a long time and that, that home changes, that lifestyle changes, or, you know, you just never know what someone's going through. You know, they end up getting pregnant or they end up having to take on a, a family member's child, you know, or whatever it might be. And that dog doesn't get along with kids. Do you now sequester the dog into one area of the house and the kid into another area of the house and try that where it's dangerous and, and deteriorating for both both parties? Or you're just your lifestyle changes. I rehomed the first dog that I ever had when I was like 20. I spent as much time with her as I could, but I realized that as a 20 year old kid, I was working 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And my landlord fell in love with this dog. And I'd known this guy my entire life. He was a, he owned a construction business. He took his dogs to work with him every single day. And even at 20 years old, I realized that the better choice for that dog was to go and live with my friend Rob. And that dog lived 15 years with him. And I got to see her and, and got updates. And, and that was fantastic. But sometimes you just have to make these decisions that are better for the animal. And sometimes that is rehoming. It's like public shaming. I mean, I feel like that term, even though they don't realize they're doing it, it is shaming people who are needing the help to rehome their pets. Like John, I rehomed a pet. I did. Um, It was being attacked by my other dog. And rather than getting rid of the more difficult dog, I found a better place where the dog wasn't being harassed every single day. So what I'm saying is we all might come into this idea of, of a forever home, but what it does is it shuts down the door for allowing people to come to you when they need help. Exactly. You're eliminating yourself as a resource to them, which is something that we've done in sheltering for so long on so many levels. But this is one of the biggest ones where we've, yeah, we, they don't, they were afraid to bring them to us because now also they're going to get on the list where they can't adopt in the future because they've brought this pet back to us. Now, the other thing too, that I, I always go back to is, for the perspective of the dog or the cat, you know, whichever, whatever animal is being rehomed, we're all fans of long-term foster. We are all fans of a dog going into or cat going into a, a foster for one month, two months, six months, 
whether it's for, you know, behavior intervention or whether it's just because that dog's a little bit harder to move or that cat is just another tabby cat or whatever it might be or needs medical attention. It's in this one home for six months where it gets used to these people, where it gets used to the routine. And then after that, we adopt it out to a new home. If we're okay with that, then why are we so damaging on on people that need to rehome their pets? I think sometimes with this term, and, and this is the case with others as well today, maybe we may talk about. It's like we're worried of the repercussions of like not saying it, right? So if we don't say forever home, it's as if we're concerned that we're going to start allowing adopters to see pets as temporary, as disposable, like new shirts, right? And not family members. Like we're the ones opening the door to that to say it doesn't have to be forever, I just think there are other ways to say it that maybe don't set folks up for a potential of feeling shame if it isn't working. A loving home, for example, might be a way to say it. Or maybe just home. It doesn't even need an adjective. And just to reiterate your point, McKenna, you know, we want people to come to us when they need help, right? They are not going to do that if they think that they have failed you. They are not going to do that if they think that they are going to be shamed for this adoption not working out, that they're going to be judged for it. Okay, uh, let's do another. McKenna. I'll tell you one. I, I can't stand it when I hear it. And I know it's a term we use all the time in shelters. But again, it was a term that was not allowed to be used in my organization. And that's aggressive. Yeah, yeah. And the dog was aggressive. That means a hundred different things. So what we said is that, okay, if you're going to use the term, you need to stop and define what that term is like what is the action that they saw that made them label that aggressive so it, they in a sense we got rid of the word in my organization when i was running it and instead we made them say the dog tried to bite the right arm of the rather than the dog was aggressive the dog bit aggressively like what does that mean that could mean a hundred things was it cutely aggressively licking the kitten you know what i mean was it aggressively snuggling you know was the dog experiencing cute aggression when it saw the little kitten like we all want to do and just squeeze you know cute aggression is real so no but for you know for real they're like yeah you have to be way more way clearer in that because that's kind of like labeling a dog that or a cat that as being aggressive, yeah, it, it labeling labeling an animal as aggressive can mean a, a whole myriad of things to different people. You definitely need to get a lot more clear on that. Yeah, and again, there are probably others in the same vein that are potentially problematic, you know, dangerous, another one of these terms that may actually have a legal definition because it's in a local or state law. Really, any kind of behavior-related terminology can be tricky. And in fact, another of mine was behaviorist, which I'm really doing on behalf of Mark Peralta. You're welcome, Mark, because I know that's one that he really wants to see used correctly because animal behaviorist, it's a really specific, highly credentialed position. I think there's only like eight in the country I mean, oh, it, man, is that true? I, I think there's like a very, in fact, I knew one, I hired one. She made it a really big deal. She was a certified behaviorist that she had to go through certain certifications. And there was only a very small group of them in the whole country, but people throw it around all the time. Yeah. People labeling themselves as something they're not is very common. We see that a lot too with veterinary technicians. You know, again, that's a that's a very real specific thing. Someone can go through and become like a certified veterinary assistant here, but that's not the same thing as a certified veterinary technician in North Carolina. Yeah, again, listen, words matter. Definitions matter. Those different titles actually also give authority to do certain things, right? So maybe a solution for this one is just not give people job titles they didn't earn. John, what about your list? I mean, the term bully has always driven me nuts. 
you know, bully breed as someone who owns pit bull type dogs or whatever. And has always in my entire life, my dog growing up was a pit bull lab mix, which is still like my favorite. I love that mix of dogs probably because of that crazy dog I grew up with. But yeah, I mean, bully has this very negative connotation to it. So when we walk, throw out the word bully breed, I know we say Aussies or we say, you know, herding dogs or we say this, but when you use the actual term bully, it just has that negative connotation to it that it is going to actually continue to be, for lack of a better term, aggressive or pushy that in a negative way. Totally with you on that, John. Not to turn this into a therapy session, but my entire middle and high school experience was defined by bullies and they weren't nice at all. So, you know, naming dogs after the same characters that tortured me for most of my childhood doesn't bring about warm fuzzies when I hear it, for sure. Uh, and, you know, those blocky-headed dogs... Setting aside the problem of not treating dogs as individuals, so many of them are just the biggest softies, right? They're the furthest thing from being a bully. So that negative connotation, I don't know that it does, a, does them uh, a lot of favors. Uh, best friends, I believe our style guide is currently Pitbull Terrier Type Dog, which I know is kind of a mouthful. Blocky-headed, I said before, it's something I see used. This is one, I'm not sure there is a clear winner of something to use. Because this term, these terms... We're using them to refer to a whole slew of different breeds and mixed breeds, and we know that Pitbull actually isn't even a breed, and breed identification can be a very perilous exercise. All of this brings up the question for me that there are organizations out there that use some of these terms in their actual or organization name, right? Like terms like bully. They may be listening to this right now. You know, somebody from Bully Breed Rescue USA. I mean, I made that up. But the point is, how far should we be going to scrub these terms? Should organizations consider changing their org names? I mean, I think it depends on what that is. But yeah, I mean, I think I think they need to take a look at it. There's a certain uh, idea of like, you know, taking it back. I understand that. But I'm trying to, you know, shift it into a positive. But like you're saying, the, the whole world knows bullies <laughs> as people that, you know, picked on you in high school or picked on you, you know, throughout your life or picked on you in a movie, you know, and, it, you know, we see these, especially in the 80s, um, these, you know, very specific bully icons thinking, you know, like Karate Kid. It's just a very negative term. And are you doing service and justice to the animals you're trying to help by continuing that stereotype or should you take another look at the words you're using? McKenna, give me another on your list. So a term that I would love for us to shift is stray. So to the public, the, when I hear the word stray, I think of Lady and the Tramp and the Tramp dogs living out on the street and your street dogs. So instead of labeling dogs and cats as strays, we should look at using the word lost, lost pets. It's really, honestly, and we should look at using the word pets also as a whole another one to throw in there, not a takeaway instead of saying animals. Uh, these animals, these pets, they're pets. They were somebody's pets and they hopefully will be somebody's pets coming in the future. So it's something else to think about. But I definitely would love to see the word stray be used less and the word lost be used more. Well, stray also takes away from the cats that live outside, community cats, that that is their home. And so when we continue to refer to them as stray or aimless and wandering, they're not. They live here. <laughs> this is their home. So I agree with you. We need to make sure we're using, being very specific about what term actually applies to that animal, whether it is actually stray and aimless or whether it is lost 
or whether it is a community cat. Can you recall the percentage of pets that enter shelters that are owned? I think it's for dogs. I think it's around 45% of the strays that come in on average. I, I might be off on that. Uh, and really, honestly, most of them are owned. The owners just didn't come back to get them for whatever reason. And and a lot of people assume they were abandoned or dumped. And that's two other words I'd like to see us stop using as a whole. Because, again, that's judgy and labeling people in the community as a, as a negative. And we are making assumptions that we don't know. Now, for cats, I think the, you know, the lost cats, I think it's like 2 to 4% go back to owners. Are cats really lost? If they're living outside, people pick them up. They may not be lost at all. They may be living in their home outside in that environment. Most most of them, I would say, with cats, most of them are not are not are not stray or lost. And cats specifically, right? You know, we know if a cat is picked up by an animal control officer or a neighbor, whoever, taken to the shelter. Um, listen, we're not going to debate on this program right now whether or not people should be allowed to let their cats out. Cat owners are going to let their cat cats outside. Whether we like it or not, we're not going to stop it regardless of how we feel about it. But for those owners, for their cat to be gone a long time, not unusual, right? So their cat gets to the shelter. The owner by day maybe two or three says, hey, you know, where's my cat? These are all days that are elapsing and whole times are running out. So by the time they've noticed, the cat may already hopefully have been rehomed, adopted out at the shelter. But as we know in so many communities, the outcome may not be positive. And the odds of that original owner just going on at some point to get another cat, letting that cat outdoors again, generally pretty good. So if we don't do anything different, we're just continuing to help, you know, perpetuate this cycle. Well, how about this one? How do we feel about the term adoptable? I think it's it's similar, I guess, to aggressive. I, I'm not I'm not opposed to the term adoptable, but it needs to be narrowed for sure. It needs to be, I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a tricky one. Yeah, one here that I think maybe has better options. So, you know, but use, but with an asterisk, maybe. I, I don't know. For, for example, uh, best friends, we, we use healthy and treatable. Adoptable is just so dang subjective. And that definition absolutely changes from person to person, place to place. And, and of course, what is adoptable has changed even in the last few years. FIV positive cats, once thought to be totally unadoptable, but as we learn new techniques, we learn new things on the medical side, we realize it's not dangerous to have an FIV cat mixed in mixed housing with cats that are negative. So, you know, again, ad- adoptable, it's just a really subjective term. And, and, you know, I think these types of terms made things like our earlier data collection efforts fall short because it relies on individuals' perceptions of what is good and what is bad. And we know we don't even, and we know we don't agree on everything in animal welfare. So, you know, as I say, we use healthy and treatable at Best Friends, which has its own subjectivity, treatable, but we have tried to define these things, you know, some conditions like amputation, for example. You know, we've tried to define these things and and we have position statements on our website, which I will link to in the show notes and on our website at bestfriends.org slash podcast. You know, I don't have a solution for this, but I I thought about this because I obviously we knew we were going to do this broadcast today, but I wonder about the term owner surrender. It's a term we've used for 20 some years, if even longer. But I wonder, is there a better term than owner surrendered? Never thought of that. I know. I I was like, I wonder, is that a term that we should be still using? Does it lead us to any negative thoughts around it? 
I know that that also pulls in the irresponsible owner. You, you see those social media posts of people calling people out for having to surrender their pet as being abandoned, dumped, or irresponsible. That goes back to what we were saying about forever home. Uh, but the terms owner surrendered, uh, so I tossed that one out to you too. Yeah, I don't know the history of the term owner surrendered. If anyone does, by the way, please email us, podcast at bestfriends.org. Definitely sounds like an inside term to me, you know, maybe something that started with shelter management software or something. And no doubt it's a tough one. I mean, the dictionary definition of surrender is to give up, right? I mean, to give up. So you can understand how that would come off in a way that feels like that owner is being shamed. And we know that people largely don't want to surrender their pets. They only got to that point because they'd exhausted every option they thought was available. And of course, we now know that if we have conversations with them, we often can help them keep their pets. Uh, and again, some owners, sure, some people are flipping about pet ownership, but the vast majority are good people. They are not. And so calling it a surrender, yeah, tough. Uh, owner turned in for, re- I don't know. I don't know if there's a better term. I'm just throwing it out there. Well, I, I said this at the top of the program, but just to reiterate, none of these things, we're not trying to make anyone feel badly if you do use any of these. And hell, as you can tell, so much of this is really subjective and context matters a lot. So nobody's doing anything wrong, but when we know better, we can do better. How about overpopulation? I'm not a fan of the term. I understand why people use it to refer to what the problem is in their community or in the field an overpopulation. I think the point with this one is that, you know, I don't know, 25 years ago, you could probably say the overpopulation was a bigger part of the issue. Spay and neuter, not nearly as prevalent and as accessible as it is now. But that last annual data set we have for 2021, I think the number of animals needing to be saved to reach that 90% save rate benchmark nationwide total number of animals was around 350,000. But millions of homes acquire pets each year, right? So it's not really a question of overpopulation. It's really an acquisition problem. You know, we need to convince more people to choose adoption first. And and so, yeah, and I think overpopulation, just kind of like a, a loaded term. And what I mean by that is it sounds like overpopulation. You know those things, the cat pyramid, where they say two cats can, uh, you know, within five years, 16 million cats or whatever those numbers were. I mean, if you use that type of language, it sounds like, you know, you're walking down the street and you're up to your knees in animals. So it kind of has like a bias to it and that you're maybe then going to prioritize certain programs over others, even if the data shows otherwise. Simplifies it to suggest that it's, Spay neuter is the solution. Exactly. And again, no one is saying that we don't do spay neuter. Quite the opposite is incredibly important part of, of that programmatic mix. Right. I don't have hard data on it, but I think the lapse in surgeries during COVID definitely had an impact and has helped us get where we are today. But, you know, the balance of programs and resources, that matters, especially to the animals that are in the shelter right now needing to be saved. Well, I think you're right. I, I I see there are communities in the South that are overrun with the amount of animals in their community. However, they think that spay-neuter will fix it in the short term. It takes a long time for spay-neuter to actually work in a community. So, you know, spay-neuter is, is an important tool in the toolbox to reducing the amount of animals in your community. However, a lot of, and not all, let me also say that, a number of these communities we see, they're just not embracing the public to help them with the problem. So they don't have the adoptions that they should be having. They're not having the engagement to bring people in to help them. 
And so the only solution they have is the spay neuter situation. And that isn't the only solution because that could take 10 years. It could take five years. It could take 10 years. It could take 20 years, depending on how much you're doing. Well, and and using that term, yeah, like it just makes it sound like that is literally the only solution and the only thing you can do. And we all know there are other things. And I'm in North Carolina. Access to care is one of the biggest challenges for public and for shelters in North Carolina. But the second issue that we have is distrust of the public. (laughs) And when I'm talking to these shelters, they're like, oh, no, the public doesn't want to doesn't want to do this or the public doesn't want to do that. And like, OK, well, what's their access point? Like how much, you know, what how many veterinarians do you have or you know, what's their access for a low cost spay and neuter? And oh, well, nothing. We can't even get our own pets spayed and neutered here at the shelter. So it's this weird friction of like, act, you know, of the consideration that spay and neuter is the only solution to our uh, pet euthanasia or pet killing, you know, policy process, whatever. But trust in the public is the biggest one. Like it, it, it's such a huge issue for us trusting the public and not bringing the public into the fold, into the solution, especially and then turning around and blaming them because they're not doing something that they don't have any access to do. Well, and this is actually a great segue into another one on my list on the road to a better life. We see this often uh, in relation to transport programs, right? You know, taking animals from an overwhelmed community, a place that maybe doesn't have programs in place, isn't engaging the community to help, which you could certainly say maybe that community has like a localized overpopulation, and then taking pets to other communities that, you know, have the capacity to help. And you see videos, you know, the Facebook Live folks uh, starting these transports, you know, saying, hey, we're going to take these amazing pets from this area. And, and let's be clear, they're often incredibly under-resourced communities, you know, areas of the country that are socioeconomically on like the bottom end of the scale and say, we're going to get them off to a better life, a better life away from here, right? And obviously the, the inference there is that those pets don't have any chance of a good life were they to stay in that community. And that's a problem in a whole lot of ways. And this is why I said earlier, you know, if we know better, we can do better. And this is one that a lot of us are still saying quite often, I think. We're getting our new transport vans wrapped. We're getting t-shirts made. We're putting those types of slogans on there. And, And listen, I don't think anybody's trying to be hurtful. I just think over time, that type of thinking, conscious or not, can actually impact us and and almost create like an unconscious bias, right? Because that thinking seeps into our psyche and sets up a this community bad, this community good sort of mentality, right? This community not worthy of pet ownership, this community worthy of pet ownership. It's really that kind of binary when you think about it. And John, as I said, it really dovetails into your point. You know, these communities often aren't doing better for pets because they don't care or because they don't want to. Obviously, they care. They've actually engaged people from outside of their community to come in and help. They're often not doing better within the community because they don't have the resources to. So maybe instead uh, we say on the road to a new life. Yeah. So that kind of leads into um, a soapbox moment. Not every story needs a villain, but yet we always feel like we need to to find a villain to blame or to negatively show or highlight so that we could be better or that the act we're doing is is monumental in some fashion. It goes to this whole concept of the kill shelter or the pound or the the we don't need to call shelters kill shelters. We do not need to do that any longer. We need to stop it. We don't need victim we don't need victims. We don't need 
villains, we just need to show the work that we're doing in a positive way and not try and bring any other person or any other organization down in the process. It doesn't do us any good. It makes us all look bad. Yeah. Freedom Ride has been one of my least favorites for a long time because exactly what you guys are already saying, like this community doesn't have the resources in a lot of, in a lot of chances, doesn't have the situation. They don't have the resources. So that we're sending them off to a better place. And and in the freedom ride denotes that this shelter is not trying at all. And in a lot of times in my experiences, those shelters are the ones that are really busting, you know, and, and they've gotten up, some of them get up to an 85, 90% live release rate, you know, because they bust so hard despite having no resources you know, because they're working so hard to get these animals out of their shelter and out of their community and into an area that is more resource rich. So now we're vilifying them. Most importantly, it vilifies the other shelter, even no matter how hard they might be working. Now, on the other side of that, you also need to be adopt. Like it drives me crazy when I see shelters that are only doing transport and they won't adopt out to their own community at all. Again, it comes down to that whole distrust of community because you're no longer working to serve your community while you're saving pets. You're just focused on getting them out because everyone in your community is evil or bad or, or whatever. But if you can give them some increase, some access to care and help to get them spayed and neutered and vaccinated pets into their hands, then they automatically become a better owner and you become a resource for them moving forward. Really. If, if you look at this podcast and you say, when I do a social media post, is there anything in this social media post that's going to make someone feel bad? Whether that's the public, the other shelter that you're helping, uh, the donors that you're trying to get money from, are you going to shut them out because they're they're overwhelmed with the red alert, red alert, red alert? You know what I mean? Like, really look at your posts and the language that you use. And, and we have to stop beating up on each other and stop judging and stop being so negative. And look at more positive ways of expressing things. That hero-villain narrative point, McKenna, boy, what a good one. You, you said it earlier, but for folks who are not aware of you and your background, before Best Friends, you ran the Lynchburg Humane Society in Virginia. A truly great no-kill success story, I think it's fair to say, at a time when maybe those types of success stories were the exception. They weren't the norm. You know, you guys were cooking when the, the no-kill recipe really wasn't as widespread as it is now. And I have to think that you were, whether you wanted to be or not, you know, you were put into a position of being that hero to some and being a villain to others. But why are we the enemy? Because we because we're a no kill shelter. We would ne- we never use that term. We would always look at ourselves as we achieved no kill. And in fact, when we first started down the path to reaching a ninety percent save rate, we didn't use the word no kill at first. We just were we were trying to reach a ninety percent save rate for our community for the community. So what we built ourselves up on was to be a community resource that helped not just the city of Lynchburg, because we did, we had the contract for sheltering for the city of Lynchburg, but we took in animals from all around us. We took in owned animals that no longer could stay in their homes into our shelter as a resource. So we wanted to be seen as a resource. And so when other shelters started to fill up and they needed to make hard decisions on space, they saw us as a resource, not as a hero. And we didn't project ourselves as a hero, but we did say we are always here to be helpful, to help animals 
who are at risk. I just realized the time about 10 minutes to the top of the hour. Were there others on your list that we didn't talk about yet? Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, I know a lot of that cutesy type talk is kind of controversial in its own right. You know, for me, these ones less problematic. I mean, we want to be fun and lighthearted and playful. And in many ways, it's a, this is a wonderful line of work. We filled with cute pets. I baby talk my cats. Don't judge me. But why do you think it's not okay to use that kind of wordplay? I think there's language that is annoying to us. And there is language that is detrimental to our work. And I think there's a there there's a divide there. Like to me, like perfect, blah, blah, blah. Okay, we can talk about perfect time, whatever. But they're just trying to be cutesy. And like things like fur kids and fur baby and blah, blah like that. They just get under our skin more than anything, you know, terms like, you know, freedom ride and stray and pound. And, and these, yeah, these things are actually detrimental to our work and to our industry. And that's why we need to get away from using them. Well, John, I noticed you didn't roll your R. Perfect home. I gotta go. <laughs> McKenna, you don't like this kind of wordplay, but come on, it's okay to use for some, isn't it? No, it's, it's, it is. It's, it's annoying to some of us because we've heard it so much over the last 20 years. That's part of it. But I think John really said it beautifully. One set of terms actually creates barriers and hurts the work that we're doing. The other one just makes us feel icky. Yeah, I mean, not for me either on the whole, I guess, but fair to say the public does respond to some of it. Let's be honest. The public love it. No, that's why you do it. Yeah, not for every organization, but saying perfect isn't going to cause the earth to stop revolving on its axis. Again, I got chills. I hate it. (laughs) Sorry. I won't do it again. I promise. Oh, I have a visceral response to it. Well, the only other term I might throw out there for this discussion is open admissions. I think I don't like the term open admissions because people often, not always, will use it as a reason that they're having to euthanize a large number of animals. And I did that for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was one of those people for a long time that goes, that's how I understood it to work. Like we have to just have the floodgates open and these open doors. And, you know, it's really well in the last like five years that like managed intake has become an industry standard and that community cap practices have become more and more of, you know, of an industry standard because we realize that like, you know, trapping and euthanizing and trapping and euthanizing is just like absolutely less than the futility and a waste of your resources. But prior to that, the whole idea was if you were an open admission shelter, that you could not turn anyone away. We still aren't turning people away. Well, we're just giving them different resources right. you know, and, and bringing them into the solution in every step of the way instead of just in adoption or just in transport. Yeah. So you can be an open admission shelter that is managing your intake. Yes, you should be. People don't get that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I ran an open admission shelter that managed the intake and gave resources to owners so they could perhaps deal with their issues themselves and immediately brought in any emergency situation and truly those animals in need. Exactly. And you're able to provide so much more care and attention to those animals that really, truly need your help. And and also, it's not even just about helping them keep the animal, but helping them rehome it on their own, you know, or whatever that might act, because it may need to be going to a different home, but if it can stay there until it goes to the next person. And now also you're involving the, the former owner with the new owner so they can have these direct conversations and, and that person only to find one home for one person. I know we can talk about managed admissions all day, but it's just, yeah, there's so many steps that we can involve the public that we haven't in for so long. Great stuff, you two. I'm so glad we were able to pivot today. Pivot. 
That has to be on the list, right? No, pivot. I'm okay with pivot. We used it a lot, but I'm okay. It's it can have a resurgence, I think. Me too. I never I never had a problem with pivot. It was all COVID. Pivot definitely a COVID casualty. I must have heard and even said that word myself five thousand times. The first year of COVID, it's all over the early episodes of the podcast, I think even in the titles. Um, But I'm glad to know that it's okay to use again. I really appreciate you spending the time this morning chatting about this with me, you guys. Thanks, John. Thank you to Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, and Kim Clonge for helping to produce this program. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.